I'm Mary Sabatino, Vice President and Partner at Gallery Lelong Co. in New York, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of Viewpoints with Gallery Lelong. Over the next several months, the podcast will be exploring new stories and starting conversations with the artists, curators, and thought leaders who inspire us at Gallery Lelong. The inaugural episode of Viewpoints, I'll be joined by artist Peter Coyne, whose solo exhibition, Having Gone, I Will Return, is on view until October 27th at Gallery Le Long in New York City. Welcome, Peta, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mary. This is a pleasure. <laughs> well, congratulations on your show. It's beautiful, and as you know, people have been gaga and... We've had so many visitors, so many images, and so much love for the work. Can you tell me a little about how these pieces have come together since you've been working on them for about 10 years? <laughs> it's, it comes in a very organic way. It's always uh, a lot of fun, but also kind of very difficult. Um, I, you, you have a special plan, and you think that plan's going to work very clearly, but it never does. And so I kind of keep a folder of what my ideas are, and from the beginning till the end, they radically change. And I always knew that The Doctor's Wife, which is the main piece here, would be kind of my main girl, right? But... We moved her drastically. She was in the small room. She was in the big room. She was to the side. She was every which way. And during this whole process, especially the last two years, I also asked Nate McBride, who is an architect that I work with, as you know, on any big project. And I asked him to join in this venture. And uh, we kind of uh, would come to the gallery and we came a number of times, and we had to get you and also Dee Dee Young, and we would bring our floaters, which is kind of a pattern of the shadow of the piece, and we, we would bring as many as 20 pieces, and we would lay them all around, and we would move them, and we would uh, talk about possibilities, and, and every time we came, we would change. But I would say the biggest thing that I wanted to do, and you and Nate were really game on it, was to put the observation deck in. And that was really important to me because I wanted to see um, the doctor's wife as the Japanese do from another perspective, just not straight on, but from up above. And that was difficult because I didn't want it to be another sculpture in the room. And so... Um, We had to really work on that. That um, became trying because how do you do that without making it really big in the room? And that was number one. But I have to say, the room never came together until I think it was three weeks before the show when we were laying it out for the last time. And it was actually you, Mary, who finally said, you know, I just can't help but to feel that the two big anchors for the show, which is Lost Landscape and and the Portrait of a Marriage, should be over here where the skylights are. And I said, but I don't want them lined up. And you said, well, let's just move them. And brilliantly, that released everything. Because if we could do that, and maybe I'm talking too technically for everyone Mm. listening, but if we could do that, that released the whole show and that made 
the whole environment perfect. So the relationship to the space and the architecture seems to be critically important for you as you're building the pieces as well? Are you thinking of how they're going to have a relationship with each other? Even when the pieces go to museums, I try to... It's an awful thing. It takes so much of my time. But I try to go to all the spaces, see the heights, see where they're going. We record them in the in their books, that they have the master books, because it's critical. And every time they move, we get a, a floor plan of how they are, the heights on the floor, because they do change with every time they're installed. And it's critical. They change in the heights, and and that's denoted by the space of the room and just one piece. And if they're with a group, it, that changes, yes. Can we talk a little about the implied and overt content in the work. There are many titles that refer to literature. Uh, You spoke of The Doctor's Wife. I mean, that for me has always been, when you started to speak about the show, the conceptual kind of heart of it. Can you speak a bit about how these different texts have either informed the work or have you sought them out uh, in particular? Or do the titles and the ideas come during the process of building the pieces? Well, it's it's kind of interesting because like when there's a newborn, you name the child. But when there's a piece, the piece kind of gets its own personality. and, And so it has maybe because the doctor's wife, it was 20 years in the making. So it had maybe five or six names and it wasn't until the end that it made its own name. So it became the doctor's wife. It was Starry Night for a long time. It was, it had a number of names as did The Year of Magical Thinking, which is the piece I called Joan. And it was Soul Mountain for a long time by the Chinese writer who got the Nobel Prize. But It changed, and then it shouldn't have really been his novel because the piece changed. And because the pieces take on their own life, it's so much like how writers write. They start with a certain character, and they they have an idea for that character. And then as their novels develop and they're writing this character, the character just runs away in the novel. And if they don't allow it to be what it's supposed to be, their their novel probably isn't going to be very good. And that's the same thing with my pieces. And I know a lot of other artists that feel the same. You just must allow the piece to be what it's going to be, and it will tell you its own name. Can we speak a little bit about another piece in the show, which also has a title related to Japanese literature, The Unconsoled? That, for me has a very different format. The screen, the multi-part screen, where also you've worked on both sides. It's both a relief and a sculpture, and it has quite a lot of color in comparison to your other works at that time, which were either heavily black or heavily white, with a lot of variation. Can you talk about how that developed and what the jumping off point for you was? Well, that's Unconsoled, and that's by, it was named after a great book by Ishiguro. Although it's his sleeper novel, everybody else likes all his other 
books better. And I was so happy to hear that this is also his favorite book. And it is, I would think it would be any other artist's favorite book because it's about a pianist who just gets pulled in one direction and another direction. And every time he gets to sit down, they pull him up and they ask him to do this or that. And he never gets to practice. And all he wants to do is practice his piano, but he never gets to, you know. And it's so like our contemporary lives. The Japanese screen is very, very important to me in this particular one because a lot with Japanese writing and Japanese also culture to me, it's kind of like it brings you in, it very much seduces you, and that's why the red and the white and the birds, and they're very peaceful, and they kind of like, come on in, come look at this, isn't it beautiful? And that's what the screen is. And then as the people draw near, they I kind of have the birds going to the left, and that's how you enter this world. And then as you move to the left, it's kind of a dark void. It's a little bit, maybe a little scary. You move to the left, and that's how you enter into this much, much darker world, which um, reminds me closer to some of the darker novels that can be Japanese. Um, Some of Kawabata's work or uh, The House of the Sleeping Beauties or things of that nature. And then on the back side of that screen, it has a different life than the front side of that screen. And that's why I like that screen quite a bit. And that's a lot about what Unconsoled to me uh, feels like. What you describe as people walking around, many of the visitors, when they get, they are drawn to the screen in just the way you describe. They're seduced, they examine it closely, and then when they walk into the gallery, they gasp because they are in a different world. They're in an epic world of darkness and beauty, or that's um, how I would encapsulate it, and they're quite overcome. Even some people have quite emotional reactions. There is a high tenor or timbre of emotional response in your work. And what I see as always a dichotomy between darkness and light, you know, sorrow and joy, and a kind of intertwining of the two, which also the doctor's wife, the two figures, are linked by this swirling mass of velvet. Is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners about darkness and light and these, well, fundamental human issues or issues of the human condition in your work? Well, I, Is it something overt or something which, as you said, the character runs away with it and you don't really have a control? Well, I think the character does, but I think it is very deep inside. I think it's things that we think about subconsciously, but it's not something that I plan out. A lot of sculptors um, plan things out and they draw and they plan and they have a concept before they start. Then there's other sculptors that just trust the universe or trust their own deep instincts. And I'm more of that genre. Yet I think, and I read all the time, and I'm all that reading, all that thinking. Then when I go to my studio, I try to just erase it all and see what kind of comes out. And I'm sure all that 
stuff kind of bubbles up and that's where all those things come from. And I'm deeply disturbed, of course, by the state of affairs right now. I have great hope for humanity. I see great acts of kindness. I see great acts of amazement. I see miracles all the time, but I also see amazing cruelty and just things that I can't even comprehend. And I think all of that is in my work. And, um, and I don't know how to even digest it all. I don't know what to do about it except make work and try to put up a big mirror to the world and say, look at this, you know, can you, can you see it for what it is? I often wonder, should I be out there working for some humanitarian cause or should I be doing this? You know, I think artists are very torn with that. Are we doing enough, you know? And I think these questions are legitimate. We should be asking those questions. And so when we ask those questions, I think it does come out in our work. One thing that is quite present in the work is, as you said, the relationship of the human being to the world. And I see particularly a relationship of women to the world, of women to each other. People often don't see, let's say, the history of feminism in your work, but I have always felt that's very pronounced, both in the materials, in your way of working, in that you co-opt kind of female-associated crafts, such as sewing or flowers, and yet, you know, make this subversive twist so we can see what are the other aspects of not femininity, but I would say womanhood or femaleness. Recently, you have also started a project where you've been working with another artist to document a political collective from the 80s. Can you speak about that? Would you like to talk about the this project, which I see as a project of documenting, primary documenting history and women's history. Yes, I mean, I've always been sincerely interested in feminism, and I always thought it was so obvious in my work, especially through the naming of so many women writers or women heroines and pointing to this, even in male-written books and what have you. Um, but I guess other people never saw that so so much. So recently, um, I thought it would be so interesting to go back and photograph this secret society of the guerrilla girls, especially because they are one of the few that have survived 40 years of working against um, sexism in the art world and also in the bigger world. And so in about uh, 2010, I started this project. And about 2012, I asked another artist, Kathy Grove, to join me on this uh, plight. So we started to see how we could do this in a really interesting way. And we began to photograph them. And there's a, a we, we wanted to, to limit it from 1985 to year 2000. And we've titled this The Real Gorillas. These are the 
uh, the early guerrilla girls, and there's uh, quite a number of them. They kind of went in and out, and there's about um, 55 of them, a little bit less maybe. There's one we can't find. And what we're doing is we're photographing their aliases, and we're putting a little bit of the guerrilla girl in her alias. And then we're doing an interim state, another photograph, and that's waiting for the guerrilla girl's um, final photograph. It's all the uh, photographs of the dead women artists that they've chosen to kind of point to history. When they originally took the names of these dead women artists, a lot of them were not that well known. Mm. So it's been a lot of fun trying to find them. They're scattered all over the world. And so to find them again and then to get their photographs taken and what have you, has been a labor of sincere love. <laughs> it sounds like an overwhelming project and uh, a quite time-consuming one where it's a parallel project to your own sculpture. And while I can see how it informs one or the, the love of uncovering history, yeah. because or the love of uncovering what is the truth beneath the surface which is something I think you've always done in your work. There's always hidden pleasures for, for the viewer to find. Uh, you often turn the figure away from us or you hide, probably not consciously, but in Lost Landscape, which is predominantly a, a purple and blackish sculpture, if one walks around the edge, you will see a kind of forest of red flowers, very bright red. Can you talk about color in your work? There seems to be a great deal more color in this body of work than in previous, uh, previous shows. It's, it is true. Um, I'm finally finding my own color. And I think it, particularly in this show, previous to this, uh, I always did black or white. And um, that was kind of my colors. There was always a little bit of color, especially if you looked, especially if you were sensitive to color. Um, Toby Lewis asked me um, to do a big project at Progressive. And the one thing that she said is that I must use color. And so I went to Mexico on an NEA grant just to find color. And I, I, I went down there and I, for two months I wandered and just looked at color. That's all I did. It was delightful, but I was really looking for color. What was my color? And Mexico's so amazing. And, and I was just wondering what could be better. And then when I came back, I worked a year on Toby's pieces and I really worked so hard. And by the time I finished, I had the most god awful, horrible sculptures of eight pieces. I find that hard to believe, Fita. Oh, no. It was, it was horrible. I you find know, when that you, hard to believe. Oh, when you try to make bad art, sometimes artists do that, make bad art. You can make beautiful work. I was trying to make really good work for because Toby, I love her, but this was awful. I mean, they were peppermint pink and purples and, you know, all the colors you find in Mexico, all these bright colors, and they looked awful. And 
I knew she was coming in a week or two, and they were so horrible. So I got vats of white, and I pour all this pigmented, um, more white in it, and I just dumped molten wax on top of it. I just threw it, and for four days, working tons of hours, I just poured this wax on top of it, and then I just went to sleep. And I slept on moving blankets, and then... When I woke up, I must have rolled off the moving blankets and I rolled underneath one of the pieces. And when I woke up, I looked up and I was like, I was so confused like where I was because I'd slept so hard with like the floor plastic was wrinkled into my face. And it was just like, I couldn't quite comprehend. And, And I'm looking up and I'm, where am I? This is like hot pink and white and and then I realized I was underneath the pieces and underneath the pieces it was this color but on top it was pure white and then I thought this is perfect because Toby's place was the were these big tall 25 foot space and if you walk up the stairs you look underneath and then you could have these purples and then you could have the pinks but on top it was all white and so this was the perfect answer and I was like oh thank you whoever helped me with this and so that was the final answer for that but what I did learn was that the colors had to subtly saturate. And so with this, we subtly saturated silk flowers. We subtly saturated, like I only buy subtly, subtly saturated things. And the velvets are, I buy one or two extra colors a year that they never repeat these colors. The the green, that green that's in there, they'll never repeat. And I bought it five years ago. So these things slowly come and that's, That's how I get these colors. And people have to look hard to see them. So now I'm hypersensitive to color. No more Pepsobismal pink and purples. And I can't imagine you using Pepto-Bismol pink, (laughs) Vita. You're far more subtle. Yes. Um, So you just mentioned wax, velvet. One of the affectionate nicknames for you, I've heard, is the queen of mixed media uh, because of how many different kinds of things you use, uh, from taxidermy to wax to... And you even sometimes name the hardware in your pieces, which to me makes me think, well, everything is important. You know, every material is important, whether it's structure or whether it's the surface that we see, and you're kind of naming them in, a, in almost a reverence or a dignity. Can you talk about your approach towards materials, which I think is unique for an artist to use so many different kinds and to use so many different families of materials at different times. For a long time, I used to, after every show, I would shift materials and shift them so that, because they are language. Each new material was a language. And so then, so when I began with you, I I was using wax and then I shifted to hair. You forgot about the rats. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping we weren't going to mention the rats. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we started with the rats, rats. and uh, we quickly moved 
to other taxidermy. Other taxidermy. And then we did the hair. Um, and then uh, we did plaster. And each time we did that, it, it made me really learn that language. Learning that language, I had to really know what it was I was saying with uh, that particular material. And now, all these materials I have at my fingertips because I'm so much older now. And I'm lucky enough to have just 10,000 square feet of materials storage. And we have an extreme... That is rare. That is rare. (laughs) And we have it extremely well organized. We have it like a library. And um, and then upstairs is where we work. And um, we have all that as just the workspace. So with... The doctor's wife, we worked on that for just two years at the end, only working on that. And so when the velvet became way too heavy and we needed to add another material and we tried fur and we tried cotton and we tried hair and we tried we tried so many different things before we went back to the wax flowers to just add lightness. But if I hadn't had all those materials downstairs... Um, I couldn't have easily just tried all these things. And all sculptors are hoarders. We are just endless hoarders. We just, that's what we are. And maybe we can be hoarders because we have the more professional name of sculptors. But there's also, I would say, an attitude of redemption in your materials because sometimes you're taking, there's a piece made with... uh, Black sand, which is a byproduct of casting, which is usually discarded. Even the taxidermy is a kind of reclaimed life. And I remember you telling me that some of the taxidermy came from a natural history museum, which went out of business, in quotes, um, and they were just disposing of this. But yet you have found these materials which other people would consider uh, detrius, and yet they have a new life. Yes. Um, do you feel as that you are giving new life to these uh, objects? Oh, it's very Catholic. I mean, always to take something, you know, and give it a second life, give it hope. Isn't that always our way? Uh, you know, anything you would see on the side of a street where it's hopeless what better thing to take it and make it beautiful again? I mean, everything secondhand is better in my sculpture than buying it new. So, yes. I would say it's a beautiful thing, Peter, to think of your work as offering us the possibility that no human life is beyond redemption and that all these terrible things in the world which are happening have a possibility to be healed. And I do think that the viewers have seen that through your sculpture, and that's one reason why. I've noticed we've had a number of repeat visitors, people who've come back, and they write long epistles in the book of thanks to you. Oh, that's so nice. So my last question, which, of course, every art dealer wants to know, (laughs) what's next, Peta? (laughs) Can you share what your 
Because I know, even though you're supposed to be resting after the labors of the show, that you are working every day in the studio. (laughs) So um, what's next? You may not want to know. (laughs) Are the rats coming back? No, the rats are not coming back. I don't think I could handle that. Um, It's funny. After this show, my vision became so crystal clear. Usually you've kind of gromp around a little bit. I know exactly what I need to do. And it's so crystal clear. And I just tripped on it. And it's like, it's so clear. I know the space. I know what I need to do. And um, it's amazing. I I can see it. I mean, the way I can see, the way I, I saw this piece, it's like, you, you only have to make it. I only have to make it another 20 years, right? Oh, God, I know. No, I mean, it's just, it's, and I know the book it's coming from, or I think I do. You never know. But the one that will start me off on it, it's, it's quite uncanny. Well, thank you, Peta. Thank I, you, Mary. I, uh, it's been a really, even for me, who knows your work, I think pretty well, I've learned new things this afternoon, and I appreciate your taking the time to speak with, with me and with our listeners about your work. Thank you, Peta. Thank you, Mary. So on behalf of Peta Coyne, I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on the inaugural episode of Viewpoints, Be sure to follow us on Instagram at gallerylalong, that's one word, and to visit our website, gallerylalong.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter and keep up to date with our exhibitions and artist news. And from all of us at Gallery Lalong, thanks for listening.